There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Armed with Lucille, his trusty guitar, B.B. King was the international ambassador for the blues. In tribute to the late great bluesman, we'll offer a classic album dissection of B.B. King live at the Regal. Then we review the latest from British folk rock legend Richard Thompson, and I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, Greg, we are going to review what I think is the 25th, it's hard to count, album by Richard Thompson. Ranks high on my list. I know it is on yours, too. June of 2014, Thompson was in the studio, an acoustic guitar in his lap. He's playing songs. We're having the greatest chat with him ever. He says at the end, I'll give you boys one more. Anything you want. Or like, anything? And I screw it up, of course. I want to say, I want to see the bright lights tonight. And I'm conflating that with the title of Shoot Out the Lights, one of his solo albums. Anyway, he was very gracious, and it was an amazing evening. That's later. That's right, Jim. But first, we've got some music news. That is Ornette Coleman with Lonely Woman from 1959. Ornette Coleman died June 11th at the age of 85. In a few minutes, we're also going to be paying tribute to another late legend, B.B. King. Ornette Coleman is first on our list today, Jim, a jazz musician with huge influence in the world of music. When we talk about people who changed music, we often don't really mean it because, you know, they shifted the meter a few inches maybe, yeah. but they didn't really change music. Well, Ornette Coleman changed music. There was jazz before Ornette Coleman, <laughs> and then there was music after Ornette Coleman. What was so brilliant about him, and I think why he appealed to such a wide range of musicians, including people from the rock universe like Lou Reed and Patti Smith, Captain Beefheart, Sonic Youth, Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, was that he paid a steep price for being a rebel. He was not welcomed with open arms in the jazz community. Roy Eldridge was saying, I think he's jiving. Miles Davis put him down. Max Roach, the great drummer, apparently punched him in the mouth. He was so upset (laughs) with what Ornette was doing. It was harmelodic. That was his concept. Yes, Yes? harmelodics was the invention of Ornette. This is all about a series of chord progressions and changes, but doing away with a lot of that and crafting multiple melody lines that would be played at once without consideration of those chords. It's like having a million melodies all at once, Ornette once said, yet it's still kind of unison. Another great quote about his approach to playing within an ensemble, and he played with uh, some incredible players, Charlie Hayden, Billy Higgins, Don Cherry, I don't want them to follow me. 
I want them to follow themselves, but to be with me. This whole idea of celebrating the individual within the group context. And this had tremendous influence in the rock spectrum. When you started to see the primacy of the rhythm section versus the so-called melodic or solo instruments, a lot of that started with Ornette Coleman in the jazz world, where he was giving all of the instruments equal say and equal voice in the way that the music would emerge. And at the same time, you know, it's underrated. A lot of people think free jazz, oh, it's noisy, it's, you can't make any sense of it, it's dissonant all the time. Ornette had an incredible ear for melody. He played some of the most beautiful, melancholy melodies of all time within the context of these great harmonic improvisations that he was making. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about from a little bit later in his career. The great album started coming out in the late 50s, early 60s, but he's started working with what he called the double quartets in the late 70s and on into the 80s. And one of them made a great album, which was one of my absolute favorites, Of Human Feelings. This is a track called Jump Street with a single bassist, but two guitarists and two drummers playing on it, and then Ornette's floating saxophone on top of it, this beautiful melody. Jump Street, in tribute to the late, great Ornette Coleman from 1979 on Sound Opinions. Jump Street by Ornette Coleman, dead at the age of 85. Every day, every day I have the blues. Every day, every day I have the blues. When you see me wearing woman, and it's you I hate to lose. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Every Day I Have the Blues. The song that kicks off B.B. King's Live at the Regal concert album. You know, the show was recorded on November 21st, 1964, before a raucous crowd at the Regal Theater on 47th Street in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood, a real epicenter of African-American culture in this city. 
Many people consider Live at the Regal to be King's single greatest recording, and its influence was huge and still is, notably among legions of British blues rock guitarists then emerging in the early 60s. Eric Clapton reportedly would play the album before his shows to get the crowd psyched up. B.B. King passed away on May 14th at the age of 89. And in tribute to the legendary singer and guitarist, today we're offering a classic album dissection of Live at the Regal. We're joined by Dick Waterman, the co-author with B.B. King of the book The B.B. King Treasures. Now, Dick Waterman's a photographer, writer, and promoter whose career in the blues spans six decades, and he's had a legendary career. He's worked with artists like Sunhouse, Lightning Hopkins, Bonnie Raitt. He was the first non-performer to be inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Dick, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Dick, uh, your relationship with B.B. King goes back a long way. When did you first meet him? I met B.B. in, I think, the middle 70s or so, and I photographed him for the first time at Newport in 68. You know, B.B. released a lot of albums over his career, but Live at the Regal seems to be the one that everybody returns to when they talk about the great B.B. King records. What was it about the performance that night that was so special? Well, he really had maintained a control over the audience. My favorite song from that album is uh, How Blue Can You Get, Mm. which was written by Leonard Feather. You see, I'm a big fan of guitarists who underplay I think you should play enough to let the audience know that you're a great guitarist. Show it to them and then don't play it. That's why Albert King and Eric Clapton are so good. They play the pauses. Mm. And in How Blue Can You Get, B.B. sings, um, I gave you a $10 dinner. You said it was a snack. (laughs) I let you stay in my penthouse. You said it was a shack. Right. And now he has a pause there, and he plays that pause, and the audience knows it's a pause, but he totally has them with him in rhythm. I gave you seven children, pause, pause, and now you want to take them back. And the audience roars with that. I gave you seven children, and now you want to give them back. Well, you know, the thing that always strikes me as a music critic, as a fan of B.B. King, is the way that there's not really a difference between his sung verses and his guitar. Often, uh, during the Regal concert, he steps back and says, now I'm going to play you some, right? And it's as if he's singing another verse, but this verse happens to be sung by Lucille, or his guitar at the moment. Baby, you done lost your good thing now. Well, the point here is that B.B. could not play and sing at the same time. You know, I don't know whether that's common with a lot of major guitarists, but B.B. played and then sang, but he couldn't do them both simultaneously. Well, they were like a married couple, like uh, they would finish each other's sentences. That's the way I always thought of it, as an ongoing conversation that he was having with Lucille throughout the show. But it's interesting that I've heard this point before, Dick, that he he didn't want to or couldn't play at the same time that he sang. 
So are you saying that probably one of the most imitated styles of all time was an accident or just simply a case of, you know, I can't, I can't do this, so it was a limitation that turned into a strength? I think probably so. In other words, you didn't have many mentors. Um, Sonny Boy took care of him, and Robert Lockwood kept an eye on him. But I think he pretty much is homegrown. He learned by himself. Mm -hmm. And so when he came out on the road in the early 50s, middle 50s, he was a full-blown finished product right there. He had this unending desire to be better to make himself a better guitarist. After he had Why I Sing the Blues and the next year The Thrill is Gone, he had crossed over. He was a major act making major money. And Elvin Bishop recalls meeting him in a San Francisco hotel. It was a very handsome suite. And Elvin said all around the room were music stands because B.B. wanted to play better to improve himself. So even though he had hit it well in as far as fame and money was concerned, he wanted to make himself a better guitarist. There was no slacking on the job for him. He had made it, but he still felt he could make it higher and better, and so he practiced. What was it about that guitar playing? You know, he played that Gibson semi-hollow body guitar, You've seen a lot of guitar players, Dick. Mm -hmm. What was distinctive about BB's sound from all the other ones that you saw? It was clearly in the tremolo, the vibrato, what he did with the fingers of his left hand. He could sustain a note better than anyone else. In other words, Buddy Guy said the other day when he came and visited at the funeral, Buddy said that B.B.'s left hand and the way he was bending notes was really indicative of his style, that it could be imitated, but you couldn't catch up to it. It was just something that was solely his. influence was so huge. It sounds like by the time you got to know B.B., he had become this superstar figure in blues. What was your impression of him as a man when you met him? Because I hear all these stories about B.B. being a relatively humble guy and being a mentor to so many other people in the blues field, including white and black musicians alike. What was your impression when you met him? Well, I think that people pay their money, buy a ticket, go in, sit down and watch the show. They get the feeling that says, I'll bet I'd really like him. I'll bet he'd, he'd like me. I'll bet we could have a real conversation. He seems to be just one-on-one -on -one with me, that it was like you're showing me that he could really be my friend. And yet we know that 80 90%, the guy's a real jerk. The guy's just <laughs> laying it, it on there in public. But the truth of the matter was, B.B. was like that. 
Mm-hmm. And if you met him and had some privacy with him, he was congenial, affable. He was he was just a really good guy. After BB did his show, the band was packing out of there. Tex had taken the amplifiers, the drum kit, and they were all packed up in the bus. But BB had a lot of night left for him to go through. People waited in line to see him. Mm-hmm. The road managers were told, never move anybody along. Never tell them we're in a hurry. Never give them the feeling that it's being forced. These were people that B.B. felt had made a contribution to his success over the years. It may have been 30, 40 years ago, but he still wanted to see them. And the thing here is that B.B. said, if the only thing that they want from me is my time, I'll gladly give that to them. Mm -hmm. And that would generally add an hour and a half or two hours (laughs) to his night after the concert was over. You talk about this personality, this personableness, this feeling like you can know him. A big part of that, I think, was the way he presented himself on stage. He would tell these little stories. The music is still playing, but he's sort of breaking off from the song proper to tell a story. I'd like to tell you a little story now, if I may. A guy singing about his girlfriend, and he calls his angel, of course, that's the sweet little angel. But let's think about a guy that loses his girl. Oh, it happens, believe me. And then he starts to sing... And you might hear something that sounds like this. How much of this was in the moment and how much of this would... B.B. would have his little tales that he would tell and it it would sort of be the same story every night. I mean, how much of this was built into the show? Well, I think he could pick up early that it was a, a good listening crowd, that they were there to hear him and he would be able to go with a little less music, and a little more conversation. If he had sort of a rowdy crowd that just wanted the music, we'll go that way. If he had a crowd that was going to be very attentive and laughing at every little joke that he made, he would go that way. In other words, he had many options open to him. We'll continue chatting with blues scholar Dick Waterman about B.B. King's Live at the Regal after a quick break. Then we'll review the latest from another guitar great, Richard Thompson. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I would go out on the hillside, you know, and make every woman drunk I see. And it's my own fault, baby. Treat me the way you want to do. She said she was gonna leave me. She'd been running around with the boys. She said she was gonna leave me. God to be over in the noise. And it's my own fault, baby. Treat me the way you wanna do.
What do you say we bring him on, ladies and gentlemen? The Regal Theater proudly presents the great B.B. King. Let me hear you. Today we're celebrating the life and music of the late, great B.B. King with a classic album dissection of his Live at the Regal, recorded in Chicago in 1964. Our guest is Dick Waterman, a blues scholar and longtime friend of King. Now, Dick, you saw B.B. in concert countless times. What was the feeling like being in the audience at a B.B. King show? He had about a decade before the, the thrillers gone, that he was going out there honing his craft, driving whatever the statisticians say, 300 shows a year, 340 shows a year. He was learning his craft, learning how to get better. But this was, of course, a preeminently black audience. But once B.B. was in there, and once B.B. hit the groove and the show was going on, that the audience was blind to each other. There were no black fans and white fans. They turned towards B.B., and B.B. sang their song for mm-hmm. them. I wanted to ask you uh, just a couple of music questions uh, related to the Live at the Regal record, and I think related to his career. First of all, the presence of the horns in his group. You know, he had a couple of saxophonists on stage with him at the Regal show. A lot of the live recordings I've heard with B.B. include horn sections. What was your feeling about that? Because not every guitarist was out there with kind of more of a fuller band setup the way B.B. King was. Well, it was in uh, 2005 when I was writing the book, B.B. King Treasures, I interviewed B.B. with Robert Lockwood at the same time. And Lockwood basically said, you had to have them horns, had to have them horns. And B.B. was chuckling, and Lockwood said, I went to see the boss, the guy that was hiring you and paying you, and I said, you can cut back on B.B.'s money, but he's got to have those horns in there (laughs) right from the beginning. So this was not a situation that B.B. added horns once he had the money to add them. He had them from the very beginning. He heard, quote-unquote, he heard his sound with horns. And that was not something that it came late. Even if he was sacrificing financially, he wanted those horns. He had the arrangement that he wanted. You know, and the other thing, too, and this is a related question to that, Dick, 
you know, a lot of blues purists would look at the career that B.B. King has had and see this incredible array of music that he brought in under the blues umbrella. Like, the, the purists might say, well, that's not really blues. Even on Live at the Regal, you know, he does a song like Help the Poor, which has a distinct Latin feel to it. Help the poor, won't you help for me? Have a heart, won't you, baby? Listen to my plea. I need you so much, I need your care. Need all the loving, baby, you can spare. B.B. seemed to be a very eclectic type of listener and very open to bringing those kind of sounds and feels into his own music. By letting the horns go for a Latin sound or something like that, he basically freed himself up for Lucille to play any parts, different parts, if you were going to follow the horns, even into a mariachi sound. So it was all about him being able to stretch out. Do you think he ever felt limited by what came to become, you know, the blues? Do you know, I think that he basically stayed away from labels. Just start labeling things too finitely that, that you're going to get into trouble. Yeah, when I listen to Live at the Regal, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities to James Brown's Live at the Apollo. There are so many stereotypes, a dick, for the generation that's even younger than Greg and I. When they hear blues, they think this music that's preserved behind museum glass, it's not alive, it's a downer, it's not celebratory. But this is like going to church with Reverend Beebe. And, you know, every time he says, I'm going to tell you a little story, and then you hear the audience say, yeah, you tell us, right? It's celebratory, it's cathartic. Oh! The Regal, he told me when I interviewed him for the book, and we were talking about Live at the Regal, and he was very clear in saying that, you know, we were doing four or five shows at night, night after night, different cities. They could have picked the one just before it, just after it, a week later, a week earlier. So it's not that B.B. got his band all riled up that we're going to record the 9 o'clock show at the Regal, whatever. He was just firm in saying that was one set. While he was pleased, surprised and pleased, that that show had reached iconic status, but he said with a shrug, it could have been any show in that time period, and they were all pretty much alike. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. How about a big hand for my band? They're working hard tonight. How about a hand for them, gentlemen? B.B. as a band leader, Dick. Thank great you. band at the Live at the Regal show. Sonny Freeman on drums, Duke Jethro piano, the horn section. Throughout his career, seemed to have consistently good bands. What was your sense of how he related to these guys? Could they play what they wanted? 
Did they have to play specific parts that B.B. would write for them or tell them to play? How did it work with B.B. as a band leader? B.B. had the sound that he wanted to hear. We've already discussed the fact that he was a good guy and a sweet man, whatever, but he had the side of him that he didn't want any musicians getting lazy, and he cured that by it was rehearsal time. After the show, after everybody was out of band uniform, B.B. would say, back on stage, we're going to do the show again. Mm-hmm. And they would do the show. So who were the janitors cleaning up the building? He heard something he didn't like. Somebody was being inattentive. And so they rehearsed. They rehearsed in the middle of the night after the show was over. Wow, you're telling a great story about B.B., the work ethic. You know, the music stands in his rooms that he was constantly practicing his guitar rehearsing his band after shows that didn't didn't go to his standards. That is so rare because you often find, Dick, I don't know if you found this to be true, that a lot of musicians, once they get rolling, they don't really rehearse anymore. They don't really practice. I interviewed Clapton six, seven years ago, and he says, you know, I really don't play anymore. I'm raising my children, and the time I play is when I'm on stage, but I, I don't really rehearse between shows anymore. It sounds like B.B. was the exact opposite of that. Right. He liked, had really, really high standards of what he wanted. He knew what he wanted to have, and he had bands people who were with him for a long time, for decades, because they filled in a specific hole and sound into what he wanted. So what you're saying is he was pretty much stuck to his vision. He wasn't influenced by the trends or whatever he needed to do to be commercially successful, he was doing what he wanted to do night after night. Do you think he maintained that throughout his career? Well, I think he was open and receptive to the producers he was working with. Bill Zimzik, after working in the music industry for decades, moved to a small town in North Carolina. That's Bill Zimzik, uh, B.B.'s producer in the late 60s and early 70s, right? Right. So B.B. touring, and he comes to the little town with an auditorium, and the family came backstage. I think Bill said he had his two sons with him, and B.B. said to them, he said, do you realize what a great man your father is? Hmm. Well, I never, never don't appreciate your dad because he had some musical ideas on one of my songs that changed the course of my life and made me wealthy and made me have audiences forever. And I want you to know what a great man your father is. He was talking about the strings on The Thrill is Gone, right? Right, yes, that is true. See, what happened is that B.B. was living in New York then, and that session had gone like from... Eight or nine at night to about four in the morning. So B.B. went back to his residence, and Bill was restless on this and called him. He said, B.B., I think this would sound much, much better if we put in strings. strings. And B.B., of course, in bed, and Gregory said, sure, sure, do whatever you want. <laughs> then when he went in and heard it, he realized that Bill had created an great, great commercial sound on his song without tiring it at all, and that it was going to be a hit. Bill had said, when he recorded Why I Sing the Blues, that he knew that he had a good song, but was surprised that it 
charted on the pop music charts. But then when he had the thrillers going, he knew, and he told me at five in the morning, I think we got a hit. He didn't expect pop hit, but he knew he had an R&B chart hit, and the commercial hit of the thrillers going just surprised everybody. The thrill is gone. It's gone. Well, it was extraordinary, Dick, right? Because as a result of that, here you've got this blues guitarist, very humble origins in Mississippi and then Memphis, performing on The Tonight Show and The Ed Sullivan Show with a hit very high on the charts. It was so rare for a true blues musician to experience that kind of pop fame at that time. Did The Thrill Is Gone change his approach to making music after that became a huge hit. No, I don't think so, because that was the point that he was pleased that it had hit iconic status, but it was nothing that he had played into it or Mm -hmm. assumed or thought it was really going to be big. I think he was as surprised as anything else. I don't think he altered his show to try to keep a level of stardom. I just think that this grew by itself. Do you think with the explosion of popularity that followed the English musicians uh, trumpeting B.B., do you think that there was something that was lost, Dick? I I found a review from 1973 by Lester Bangs, who was raving about Live at the Regal and said it was stark, evil stuff, troubled and troubling, But in 1973, B.B. is now playing Vegas, and people are all paying homage to him. He thought, Lester thought, B.B. lost something. You may have to pay a toll in order to enter fame, whatever. B.B. certainly lasted much, much longer than anyone else. Whether he had lost his bite or his ferocity, I don't know. But he maintained a solid feeling of who he was and what he was doing. B.B. did not have a white show and a black show, and almost all of the individual creative musicians who had crossed over, they tried to alter their show a little bit to maybe clean it up a little bit or make it a little more comprehensive to white audiences and black audiences. B.B. never did that. In other words, what you sow, what you get. So many of the people who wrote the songs on Live at the Regal, on so many of his records, are gone. He was one of the few of that blues generation who was still performing all of the time, alive and king, you know, buddy guy, Chicago legend, you know, but he's younger, right? You know, B.B. was one of the last. Did you ever get a sense that that concerned him, that this blues generation was going to be history very soon? We discussed death Nobody's willing to go, but nobody has found an alternative to it. (laughs) We even got some uh, conversation in about his children, and he was a wild exponent of education, that he was always reading himself education, and he said if any of his children or grandchildren 
wanted to better themselves in any way, he would pay the tuition. They wanted to be a barber, cosmetologist, whatever. He would pay the tuition readily and eagerly, but he was not going to be buying the newest Air Jordans for lazy grandchildren. <laughs> he had a clear sense of what he wanted to do with his money that we're now going to have relatives against relatives that that's smoldering now and that'll burst out everybody will get the lawyers and this is going to be very messy but bb had a sense that this was going to happen and wrote a very detailed will as a matter of fact he even wrote discussions on how his funeral was to be held based on blind lemon jefferson's please see that my grave is kept clean mm-hmm. you know, he wanted two white horses at the casket so they would follow him to the burial ground and in fact they did they got two white horses to lead the casket the hearse there's two white I just want to ask you one final question. Put B.B. in context for us. Where's his place in blues history? Oh, I think he's the man. If you listen to the early stuff, 3 o'clock in the morning and Sweet the Lens or whatever, they're really great pieces of music. I don't know where B.B. was considered to be over recent years. It sort of reminds me of the story of when Louis Armstrong died. Now, Louis had been in movies, singing with Barbara Streisand and Bing Crosby and things like that. So young black musicians would like have a tendency to kind of not pay attention. You know, that he was being shrugged off. And Miles Davis, who was not really open for a lot of conversation, mm-hmm. Miles said he was the father of us all. Mm. Pause. And all the other people who had been bashing him said, you're right. I I got to give it to you, Miles. You're right. He was the father of us all. Hmm. Well, I think the music is going to live on far past the audience. He was the father of us all. Thanks for talking about B.B. King with us on Sound Opinions, Dick. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That wraps up our discussion of B.B. King and his iconic Live at the Regal album. But we want to hear from you. Where do you see B.B. King's place in blues history? Share your opinions on our hotline at 888-859-1800. We'll be back with a review of the new album by English folk rocker Richard Thompson. Then Jim will add another track to the Desert Island jukebox. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
When joy and comfort disappear I search around to find her I'm a hundred miles behind her The open road whispered in her ear Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the track she never could resist, A Winding Road from Richard Thompson's new solo album, Still. Greg, I was hedging my bets before saying the 25th Thompson solo album. His discography is so complicated, I cannot swear to that. I don't think he could either. The career goes all the way back to 1967, when he was the brilliant young prodigy, the the guitar god of a folk rock band called Fairport Convention. Then he begins a series of albums with his then-wife, Linda, Richard and Linda Thompson, in the mid-'70s. Extraordinary records, her voice, his guitar, that songwriting. It ends acrimoniously in their divorce. The pain of the end of that marriage chronicled on record. Thompson had many other solo projects through the years, from progressive rock to guesting as a guitarist, but he's been a prolific and very rewarding solo artists, both in electric, full-on band mode and in acoustic mode. As I said, we had him on Sound Opinions in June 2014. He was here with an acoustic guitar. Now he has come to Chicago. He spent some time with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. Tweedy as producer, the core trio that Thompson's been playing with, drummer and bassist backing him up, a few friends of the Wilco Tweedy family, Jim Elkington, guitarist Liam and Seema Cunningham on backing vocals. What have they given us? Let's play a song. We'll come back and give our reviews. This is No Peace, No End from Richard Thompson. The new record is called Still on Sound Opinions. Where were you when the walls were crumbling? Where were you when the guns were rumbling? Where were you when the eyes of hell took sisters and lovers away? Did you see me on a slippery slope? Stand there, my 
That is No Peace, No End from Richard Thompson. The new album is called Still. Jim, it's appropriate that we're doing a Richard Thompson album review on the same day that we're paying tribute to B.B. Uh, King and Ornette Coleman. I think uh, we've got examples there of artists, especially Ornette, who continued to push themselves artistically and musically until the very end of their lives. Yeah. And in the case of B.B., that dialogue between the voice and the guitar, you can really hear it here with Thompson. Initially about this album, I wasn't exactly disappointed, but I thought of it as somewhat of a letdown after that ferocious electric record that he put out a couple of years ago. Great record. I mean, you talk about a torrent of great guitar playing. That was an amazing uh, showcase for what Thompson can do with an electric guitar in a small group uh, format. This record, the guitar is less a centerpiece of the songs, but it's still there. There's still plenty of great guitar playing here, but it's more like a commentary or a punctuation point or a way of finishing sentences in the lyrics. It's kind of coming in in those little spaces between verses. And it's extraordinary because you think about the variety of voicings that he's bringing to each of these songs. He is just one of those guitar players that keeps showing you new moves every time you listen to him, but it's more subtle. But what really made the album resonate for me was those last couple of songs, beginning with No Peace, No End, where he takes that sort of raga drone mm-hmm. to ecstatic heights. It's kind of a dark song. And the next one's darker still, Dungeons for Eyes. I mean, that is a bleak, that's as bleak a song, I think, as Richard has ever written about the state of the world. And let me tell you, here's a man of faith who is losing his faith. He's wondering yeah. what has become of us. He's become increasingly political, but usually with a humorous tone over the last few records. Right. This is, there's no question where this album is coming from in that regard. But at the end, he throws in what initially would strike someone as a novelty song, where he, uh-huh. he runs through seven minutes of his guitar heroes. You're not going to say you like that song, are well, you? I'm, I'm telling you why I started, I started to love it. He, he's paying tribute to Django Reinhardt, James Burton, yeah. Chuck Berry, and imitating their styles, you know. Kind yes, of Paul, yeah. Paying tribute, saying, you know, as a kid, I stayed in on Saturday nights. Instead of going out on a date, <laughs> I'd, I'd woodshed with the guitar. Well, my teacher says they're going to kick me out of school. I'm nothing but a bebop, twang-headed, rock-and-roll fool If I don't do my homework, I've got to go They can't teach me what i got to know How do I make my guitar sound like Les Paul? This is why this guy plays music. This yeah. is why this guy picks up a guitar because this music is, is, is the reason for, for him to live. And it, it, it sort of gives a redeeming quality to the record, whereas it would have ended on an incredibly uh, dark place with Dungeons for Eyes. So the wow. album is sort of redeemed You're, you're with blowing that my song. mind, Cot, because I was going to say, he's closing in. He's two years away from a 50-year marker in this career. I think that may be the single worst song of his entire career. I, I think you're missing the boat, and I think I went from a try it on this record to a buy it, based on the way those three songs at the very end work together. Wow, well, I'm a buy-in on this record, but if you cut out Guitar Heroes, which really is too much of a novelty, that's what the buy-in comes if I cut that out, because it is such Hmm. a shticky, comedic song. Now, look... Jeff Tweedy is a friend of Sound Opinions, okay? We've been, you know, we've interviewed him many times. He's been a guest on the show. I have a lot of respect for Tweedy. I don't think he does much as a producer. He steps back. He just lets this incredible trio record in his loft. Okay, that's fine. It's the same thing he did with Mavis Staples. Not very much. 
But the producer at that point should step forward and say, look, 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 I know you love Django Reinhardt. I know you love Les Paul. This song is really a comedic shtick. Let's put it up as a YouTube video, okay? You don't think it makes sense at the end of this record? Like, it's needed. It's I think, needed at the end of this I think record. every note that Thompson plays on his guitar is a celebration of of life, of music, of faith, a retort to the dark sentiments in his songs. You know, I'm not anti-humor. I'm just anti that song. (laughs) Nevertheless, you cut that off, you still have 10 great songs. It's a buy-it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, what's your call this week? You know, Greg, at home at night when there's no music going on, we have been in this lull between the end of Mad Men and the beginning of Orange is the New Black. So I convinced Carmel, my wife, to go back and let's rewatch Twin Peaks. Well, for me, it was rewatching for the first <laughs> time uh, since 90 and 91 when that series directed by David Lynch aired. She'd never seen it. So for me, I was blown away by how well it has stood the test of time. One of the huge successes of that show was the way music was incorporated. Lynch is a very sensitive director when it comes to the music he uses. He's a musician himself. A new album coming out, as well as a reboot or a new extension of Twin Peaks. I'm very excited. It's supposed to be coming next year. He worked with Angelo Badalamenti. Famously, they really connected for Blue Velvet, the film in 85, and they used a young vocalist from Iowa named Julie Cruz. When they were doing Twin Peaks together in 89 and 90, it aired 90-91, Julie Cruz was instrumental to the music. Lynch wrote the lyrics. Badalamenti wrote all of the songs. The one that really stands out is the track Falling, which is kind of the theme of the whole show. Sometimes it has lyrics, sometimes it doesn't. You know, she performs on the show uh, as a singer in a roadhouse, Julie Cruz. You know, she had a career after that. The album that came out on the heels of the success of Twin Peaks, Floating Into the Night, was really popular in that era. Voice of Love followed in 93, and then nothing until the early 2000s. She's put out two records since 2002. Mainly, she has been a guest for other people. A lot of electronic stars turned to her as the very real, human, ethereal voice to provide some soul to their electronic machines. Also weirdly toured for a while with the B-52s when Cindy Wilson left the group. Never easy. But this moment is immortal. It's Falling by Julie Cruz, Angelo Badalamenti, and David Lynch on Sound Opinions.
great Julie Cruz with Falling from Twin Peaks in the early 90s. Greg, you got to watch that show again. Meanwhile, what do we have on our show next week? Well, Jim, if you can believe it, we've done 499 of these shows. Get out of here. So next week, we have the 500th Sound Opinions show being celebrated. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. And we have a new intern, Emily Espinel. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You got your limit, baby, I got mine. Six and eleven, between six and nine. You got to New messages. Hey, Sound Opinions, Dennis Marr, outside Chicago in Lamont. Just enjoyed your top five show. I uh, really enjoyed some of your picks, especially Courtney Barnett. Thanks for introducing me to her on your South by Southwest Review show. She has a great sound, kind of bluesy. At the same time, she's got a pop sensibility that's really great. Kind of would like to see you broaden your list to bring in some other music. I just discovered a band that's no release in 2015 yet, but I'm waiting for one. But Desert Mountain Tribe just smelled some of the best of Shoegazer and Psych Metal, and I'm really in love with their songs and just bought their EP. And I can't say enough about this band. Check them out, Desert Mountain Tribe, especially the song Coming Down. Thanks again. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Jessica from Seattle, Washington. And I just wanted to share my favorite album so far this year. It's Colleen Green's I Want to Grow Up. It's a super fun record. And personally, I can relate to a lot because she's singing about how she's insecure about just everything and how she can relate to her television more than she can relate to people. And although she's not doing anything too new, it's still a really fun record. The songs are super catchy, and I can't stop listening to it. And I really think Jim would like it, so you should give it a try because I think it might have went under your radar. TV is my friend, and it has been with me every day from an early age tv is my friend and it has been always there for me in time of need hey my name is ken i'm from kalamazoo michigan i've been listening to the show probably about a decade or so Concerning Passion Pit, I was thinking to myself, there's an artist who's been making records since the late 60s who's currently doing techno EDM music and has put out two new albums in kind of a similar style. The other kind of like 70s prog, that would be Todd Rudgren. I don't ever recall you guys ever doing an episode about him. He's had just an incredible career and still singing amazingly. Just saw him live. You would not believe that the guy is 67 years old. He still seems like he's in his 20s when he's singing. Just a suggestion. What about a 
maybe a feature about him. That would be really cool. Rebecca Dudley. I live in Durham, North Carolina, and I was submitting my best album of the year to a bar. I would like to say that it is Ars Moriendi by The Collection. It's a collective group of about 15 musicians, and it's an album about death and life, and uh, they're based in Greensboro, and yeah, I'd love for you guys to check it out. Thanks. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.